You know what the problem with helping is, Jake? Uh, love to hear this. Okay. Here's the problem with helping. The helper has all the power. Mm-hmm. I'm at the food bank. I'll tell you how many cans you're going to get, what kind of cans you're going to get, how often you're going to get them, how many bags you're going to carry them in, and whether you can come back next week because you looked at me sideways or not. And what the kind person of food receiving bank do the you help. Go to? I know. Listen, this is most food banks. They're okay. tough, go tough ahead. places. Yeah. Okay. So the person in the line, just do what you're told, mm-hmm. get the help, be mm-hmm. grateful, be grateful. Because if you're not grateful, that's a problem too. And then right. don't cause any trouble, get out of the way. The helper has all the power. So when it comes to the servanthood or servant helper, these people are kings sitting on top of resources. There's a no way, <laughs> no way that they are a servant in the sense that I think they want to be represented or presented. Yeah, no, I think that's right. It's, um, it, it's that savior uh, narrative. I can help, help is power. Uh, yeah. yeah, you're right. Helping is power. This is a podcast where two old friends, both Canadian, one black and one white, and both men, explore what it looks like to adopt the mindset of an inclusive society. Instead of asking, how do we get there? Jake and Chris discuss, what does it look like to act as if we're already there? Welcome to the disorienting dilemma. I'll tell you what, colonizing through human history has always been seen as helpful. Hmm. The church, we're going to, you know, help the natives in South America, Mm -hmm. if they don't want our help, we'll kill them. But we're going to help them, and we're going to equip kings and generals to help too. And we're going to help the Native Americans by putting them on reservations. We'll hold your table for you in your own land here. You can go. It's it's always been framed as, in fact, in that book that I think we've referenced before, uh, the Imperial Cruise. Right. One of the photos that you see a lot is, I think it's... um, the Spirit of Columbia or something like that. Anyways, it's a white woman floating over a bunch of wholesome pilgrims going across the West in their wagons. And she's got in their uh, in white flowing robes and she's got in one hand a book education and in the other hand something to show strength and power. Anyway, or maybe that's Liberty, whatever her name was. The idea was that wherever the whites went, they brought education and help. That was never how it was received. It's interesting because help looks like making you like me. So that's the help you have to receive. It has to Mm -hmm. be packaged like this, has to be received like this. It has Mm -hmm. to result in you being like me. And then I know you've been helped. That is the marker. That is the the metric by which we evaluate how well you're doing. Well, you've pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. How do I know that? Because you're like me now. And now you have a duty to go out and help make other people. And this is the the great commission. Go and go and do likewise. Yeah, it goes hand in hand with religion. When Admiral Percy sunk the Japanese fleet without any sort of warning and then told the Japanese they were to open their gates, their trade routes to the Americans and we'll be back. They were like, well, what are we going to do? And they they decided to side with the Americans and adopted Western ways of dressing and everything and quite literally moved towards looking and acting like the American colonizers who were exerting their dominance in effort to help the region. But what's interesting in this whole conversation is that's what the colonizers are doing. 
But it's it's interesting to think about how we perceive the people being helped. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the 80s, you, you sent me those articles about, it was the poverty porn, right? Poverty porn, yeah. Poverty um, porn. I mean, I think it's fair to say that the term came out of uh, some of those big concerts that they had in the 80s, Live Aid and some of those other right. ones where there were really western-facing uh, efforts to try and raise money for famine in Africa and AIDS Some of the most and all of these kind of severe famines that had mm-hmm. you know, rocked the continent for, for decades. So let's have, a, let's have a, um, a big concert. Let's raise money in lots of, uh, lots of uh, cool ways and probably quite an undertaking for the 80s. I mean, it's not like mm-hmm. you're just putting up a GoFundMe now. Yeah. A uh, lot of coordination. No Facebook groups or anything like that back then. And, and one of those... Uh, one of those strategies was to use photography to try and um, elicit a feeling for people to give. And so if you took pictures of uh, folks in really awful situations, right? So Mm -hmm. not a lot of dignity, Mm -hmm. taking pictures of people at their worst moment in terms of suffering, hunger, pain, and so on, could that be uh, the leverage to release some funds from people who are feeling guilty or sad or some kind of reaction to it. And so the term poverty porn was coined in the 80s. I think when attitudes around porn more generally were were very different than they are today. So the idea, well, and I was alive in the 80s, so were you. And I saw some of these images. I had no idea there was a famine in Africa. And the way it was talked about on the news without those images, it didn't seem that striking either. It was only until I saw the images of the small child were emaciated beyond belief with flies all over them and on their eyeballs. And that you began, you, you were struck with the horror of what was going on. It looked like photos from Auschwitz to, mm-hmm. to some degree. And it was, it was shocking and it did galvanize the West to actually come up with vast sums of money and do some, and force governments to do something about it too. Cause they were, willfully ignoring it as well but then you're you're right but then the danger of it being so successful in one front is that it to your i like the term it galvanizes a single story about africa Mm -hmm. and so if your mind goes there then it's hard to think of any other experience and so when when folks meet folks coming to canada from different parts of africa they recount how often people have that narrative still stuck right from the 80s when they're confronted with people who are university educated who did not have the experience of famine they just can't switch because that's been that's been allowed to sit there as that's what africa is as a continent yeah but so what right on, on the one hand mm-hmm. i mean uh, to, to i know it's, to be provocative yeah right <laughs> yeah we get it we get it yeah I, like people got food and are alive Mm -hmm. because of that effort. And I don't know which is worse, doing it slightly wrong so that people don't have dignity and we might have a one-dimensional view of an entire continent, which nobody's going to argue that's not good. Mm -hmm. But is it worse than being blissfully ignorant? Just skipping the 80s on Live Aid and that kind of thing. Yes, you're right. Now I have a a song at Christmas time where uh, do they even know it's Christmas Day or Christmas time or whatever yep. that song is, right? Yep. And it was only until I was older that I began to think, 
Well, a large majority of them are Muslim or some other faith. I don't know Why if they would really they care. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, yep. I have to look when I have to look up when other ho- when holidays are in the Arab religion. So if they don't know, who cares? But the idea is, and this is, I think, the insidious thing that you're talking about, Jake. That if they could, had food and they we, they were looked after, if they if we could solve their problem, they would all celebrate Christmas like us. They would get presents like us. They would enjoy life like we do. Meaning, we're going back to the original. The problem with the helper is, I'm helping so that you become like me. Yeah, I, but I think there's. I mean, we're assuming all the good, right? So you're saying, well, maybe there. You know, if if there's a little bit of trade-off that there's some bad and some really good comes out, like maybe it's the ends justify the means. But I think there's another angle there around exploitation, where. You know, there's a lot of criticism around the movie Slumdog Millionaire that it it portrayed a story in ways that were perpetuating those stereotypes. Mm -hmm. And it, again, told a single story. And so the ways it shows up in charity campaigns, the way it shows up in arts, other people are, are, are making the money. Other people are holding power. It's actually creating a dynamic where people are becoming more wealthy or more powerful. In terms of raising money? Well, it's not always money, right? I don't okay. know. So what's the benefit? It, so we talked about it in terms of live aid and to raise money for charity and, and family. Right. What about a show? What about a movie? What about places to go and say, oh, that will sell? Okay, well, wait. What, I feel like I'm... This is, this is interesting. I feel like I'm stuck on the one hand agreeing with you to say, yes, objectifying or characterizing people in a one-dimensional that's what a poor person is like right. and they we need to solve them they are a problem and they need they know they need to be solved too because obviously they want to be middle class right mm-hmm. like us okay I, I get that on the other hand what should we have done in the 80s sort of send out detailed well-researched articles or books on the constructs and systemic nature of poverty and how you break the poverty cycle to people and encourage them after a period of time to make pro to design proactive innovations to help Africa. I mean, really, we needed a transfer of wealth. We needed food in Africa the fastest way possible because people were dying. And the fastest way to get it is to not educate or inform or anything, just say, give me money now. And the best way to do that is to trigger the empathy so that somebody feels the pain and needs that pain to stop in the other person. So one, the one thing that they, yeah, and, the, and create that urgency because somehow right. they broke down the proximity, which is a problem when we go to help other people. We tend to help people who are most like us or closest to us. So they overcame that in a pretty significant way. So I don't want to say that was bad personally, but at the same time, I know that it wasn't good either. Yeah, but I think it's who tells the story, right? Who takes the... It's For me, in all of those, someone else came in to capture what was going to sell, that what was going to be, what was the shot. I don't see a lot of agency from the, the folks in the photos uh, participating in telling their story. This is why I like the difference between some of those other examples that were used in the 80s and... A, and uh, like a campaign like Humans of New York, mm-hmm. where people are choosing to tell their own story. Uh, the pictures don't tell, it's not just visual, 
there's something human about it. So you focus in on the person, not so much the context. So you may look at a picture and say, that face is very interesting. I wonder what the story is behind that face. And then you read it. And I read one one time where a person was a, a double murderer. There was nothing in the photo that would suggest that. So when I got to their words, their story, I, was, I found it very compelling, that first voice, far more than if you showed me a picture of that person standing with two bodies. That's salacious, but it doesn't inform me, it doesn't move me. I don't yeah. actually have a genuine connection to it. Okay, I think I'm getting the point that you're making, but I do want to make the observation that the, the murderer inflicting the violence is quite different than being the victim of circumstance in terms of how we respond to it. So sure. So a child, a child half buried in rubble, you send that photo. Okay, here's another one. Okay. You remember the Syrian during uh, Arab Spring, and then the Syrians started to fight back and kill uh, a, a whole bunch of their own civilians. Mm -hmm. And there was uh, this exodus these refugees getting out of this fight zone between Russia, Israel, Iran, the United States, everybody getting in there and making everything worse, Turkey. And there was this one photo on the, I think it was maybe the Globe and Mail, some national paper in Canada of a, yeah. of a dead small child right. on a beach. On a beach, yeah. That's irrefutable. I mean, you just, you don't, most people don't look at that and go, eh, what are you going to do? right? They, they don't read it like a statistic. Today, a hundred children will die. Yeah. What are you going to do? I mean, that, you saw that and you thought, oh man, that I've got to respond to that. I, I think you're right. So I've got to respond to it, but it right. doesn't craft out the response is, so send me a hundred dollars. So the, the payoff for this is generally, that's, um, it's not that we can't tell the stories. It's that these um, there's often the immediate, uh, we need volunteers, we need money. Yeah. That's a very different, that's journalism, right? I don't, I don't remember seeing that. I saw the picture. I remember the picture. Um, that was told in a slightly different way than, than I think what we're talking about, like send your money in. Well, the point that may be true, but I, the point I want to make is send your money in needs to, you need proximity. In our work, we always say you need to have proximity to the people you're going to, I need to be able to, in my mind, imagine what it would be like to be that person, the little baby on the beach, little child on the beach. I can imagine what it would be like to be the brother, sister, the parent. It's just heart wrenching. That is absolutely, human beings have evolved to respond to face. Right, I, I'm not going to get emotionally engaged with a bunch of bullet points or a well-written news article with no photos, and I think that's why this works. So, I, the, that's just the way human beings are. We respond to those visuals. That can't be wrong. That's just it's just who we are. It's not wrong that we respond that way. I think what you're saying is, but when you employ it to raise money, and then I would say, well, wait, aren't we raising money to help to prevent more children being dead on the beach? How is that wrong? Yeah, I mean, I where we get stuck is we, we get stuck in a binary of all right or all wrong. Right. So that, you know, I, so I mean, it's not, it's not, I don't think it's that, um, black and white, but I think, so I think about the work that we talk about around sexualized violence on campus. And one of the ways 
a lot of people often talk about it, particularly to men, is to say, imagine it was your mother, your sister, your daughter, your, which is actually not helpful because if you can't imagine it, then does it let you off the hook? That you actually have some work? Like I, I get the proximity. I, I absolutely get it. Mm -hmm. But if I don't feel proximity, does it make me any less culpable? It may not get me in, engaged you're, in the work to do. Yeah, you're not less culpable, but you certainly are irrelevant. Right. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna join in. But yeah. that can't be the only I, I think this is the space for different types of allyship. This is why the one to one, the telling the story to you know, I wonder about when we go out with volunteer there's something really cool to go to a volunteer event, corporately particularly, and then snap a lot of pictures. And then you want to take the pictures back and show what we did. Right. What's central to the picture? Is it the work? I mean, we talked a little bit about performative allyship before, but is it is it the the people? Is it are people being exploited in the photo? Is it the end product, the end state? Is it the work that we are doing together? Is it like how do you do that? Like when we talked about getting pictures for this, the website for the show. We couldn't do it because we have no pictures. Oh, from back few. in the day. From yeah, back yeah. in the day. <clears throat> well, part of the problem was I didn't own an iPhone. Right. Yeah. 1997. Well, we, we have one now. Do you, do you take lots of pictures now? Yeah. When you're out? Yeah. Of, of what? Food, drinks that I order. No, no, not that. Shoes. When you're working, <laughs> when you're volunteering, when you're in the work. Oh, well, yeah. Well, we'll take pictures of ourselves in front of the building or that kind of thing. Yeah, pretty, pretty ad hoc type of casual pictures. What are you careful of, though? Um, because I, kn I know we've had these conversations before yeah, about the, yeah, what's it's not, not in the photo. We're not exploiting people. Trying we always not try, to. We, tr we try not to, right? So that's yeah. a principled decision to say, I would never want to be photographed on my worst day. Right. Right, right, right. But sometimes when we're with people, they're, they're like, can we be in the photo? Because they want to. So we talk to them about, right. you know, their disposition um, about being in our photo, just like we would anybody else on the street. Which is fine because they are anyone else. They're human. I mean, I think that is a very human reaction, yeah. interaction. Yeah. I'm going to tell you where I'm going to post it. I'm going to tell you how it's going to show up. I'm going to tell you where I'm going to use it. Yeah. We would get these releases from just about everyone. Yeah. So but, I, how do you use it? How do you use those photos? In, in But I've seen this go the other way too, which is, look, uh, I'm going to tell you about this issue. I'm going to tell you why you should care about it. And then I'm going to ask you for money. And no, I'm not going to go introduce you to anybody and you're not going to meet them and blah, blah, blah. You should just, because that's disgusting and you're ex being, you know, we don't want to exploit people. I'm thinking. Oh, like a gatekeeper. Yeah. It's just like, mm -hmm. well then all I know is I'm giving to you and what you think is important. Yep. And I don't think uh, you're that important. So I'm not going to... What I yep. mean is that by trying to protect their dignity, they absolutely eclipse them so that I couldn't see anybody but them. So in a weird way, mm -hmm. ironically, by trying not to take advantage and exploit them but protect the poor's dignity, I have seen people completely remove them from the equation mm -hmm. and because they were trying to be such a good ally they made it just about them and what they they said and their argument 
they became exactly the thing mm-hmm. that they didn't want to be. And it, it became about them and their speech. And I, I just thought that's not a, that's not a fair representation. You're not speaking on, I, I, if I don't have some sort of connection with, with the community, I, I don't know. It just, it feels. It's, it's tough, right? We make them invisible in that. Yeah. Right. We make them invisible. So there will be no connection. There can be, be no connection. Even if they told me a story about someone, mm-hmm. but they didn't, they weren't going to, they weren't going to let that go because we didn't deserve to know they would, they were protecting those people. I, uh, I get their point of view, but I also understand why that will never work. So what does work? It's hard, right? It's hard. I think it's meant to be hard. It's supposed to be... I, I would, I would want to be thoughtful about it and mm-hmm. have to think through it before we just snap pictures at the next event. Which I'm not advocating for at all. I am no, advocating I for some of the thinking behind why those pictures are important to create proximity. That, to, for me, if, if you cannot... The people you're helping, the community you're helping, if I don't have enough information and understanding to be able to picture myself in that place, to imagine what it would be like to be the other person. That's what, in my mind, humanizes and moves away from the objectifying, they're a problem to be solved, they're the poor are broken, you know, that kind of thing. But I still need to be affected by what is breaking them Right, mm-hmm. it, because it's mm-hmm. breaking me too, and I'm contributing to that breaking. There's, there has that to is be that something. Disorienting dilemma. Right. This is that moment where you have to now start to make sense of this new thing. So instead of, and maybe this is where it goes back to pornography, but instead of just seeing it on a screen as a part for me, I'm just right. consuming it. Right. I'm actually in the story. Mm-hmm. The story can involve a lot of the same things, but it's not objectification because. It's a with posture. Maybe I, I've talked about it before, but maybe you yeah, have to explain I, I think that with I, posture. But no, but I, I think that's 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 interesting. If we're giving folks a framework to just principally think this through, so if the if the end result is if the end result is what you've described, I think is not enough. It is that the starting place has to also be about as intentional. Like, I don't think you can just happen to get there and do a little bit of good and, you know, luckily we landed this way. But if you're taking, if you're taking pictures, if you're sharing stories with the end to create proximity, and if you know that and that's absolutely a deliberate part of that strategy, then it sounds like it's okay. Yeah. We used to say that, right? We used to say, yeah, you'll know you're progressing when you know some of the folks here their names and their stories. You know you're starting to belong to this community mm-hmm. versus those people with those problems at that place that look like that kind of thing. You can describe them. You know where to find them, but you don't know any of them. You don't know the stories. You don't know their names. That, to me, is a little bit different. But when you put that on a global scale, like with Africa, I gave money, and I didn't know any of their names. I didn't know really any of the stories of the one a photographer or videographer got back to me. That's, yeah, that's difficult. Agreed. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
I already told Daniel, our producer, for anybody listening, if this actually goes on the air, I have no idea if you're going to be able to make a podcast no. out of this because Makes this is magic somewhere. Well, this is really complicated because because you can't have the right intent. When you go to help, you're just helping and you're probably helping for a lot of bad reasons. And that can't be... As a starting place. As a starting place. And we can't disqualify everybody who doesn't come correct. Right. On day one, that's like saying to, you know, kindergarten kids, do you know your, you know, arithmetic? No. Well, you're going to have to know it. So go learn it and come back here. It's kindergarten. We're going to pick our noses together and have naps. And that's the beginning of education. just just meeting meeting people on the journey no i think there is to your you've said it a couple different times but it's the same word it's that there's mm. an arc to it there's an arc to that journey yeah. and and uh i think you're right you meet people where they are they're going in the right direction but i think the point of today was to create some positive tension for folks to say well how how are we using it how are we showing up are we creating proximity in uh how could we do more of that uh, yeah, and um, if if we can get folks thinking like that, I think yeah. that's the point. So before we ramp up, I do want to give a concrete example that I heard from somebody who went to a fundraiser once, and in an effort to help everybody in the room understand the communities that they were working with, they asked them to take on a character, a persona of that group. Some people were very wealthy, and some people were very poor. What ended up happening, like any good vaudeville. Uh, type of uh, show is you you go to a trope you go to the characterizing of a group by the stereotypes right the the most mm-hmm. bombastic big things like if you're going to be a clown you're going to be a clown with huge feet and a big nose are all clowns like that no but that's the character that we know and we we use to communicate that right and so this this event if i remember correctly went horribly wrong as <laughs> As people played it, the worst version of who they saw that group to be, and in effect, further disenfranchise them, which is what stereotypes do. Us and them. I'm not like that. They're like this. Is that a good example of of when, in an effort to create proximity, we do it the wrong way and we yes. actually do harm? Yes. It trades on stereotypes. It creates caricatures of suffering. Uh, and then at the very end, you have a facilitator debrief it saying, so how did it feel to be poor? How did it feel to... And it is the most wildly offensive experience. And I've I've done one of those. You know, I think one of the takeaways was realizing how many, to your point around proximity, uh, this had to happen for some of these folks because they had no access to actual lived ex- people with the same lived experience. So all they could do is guess at it. Well, this, these must be the decisions that a person who, who has to live off of $700 a month, I think this is how they would act. Yeah. Why don't you ask them? Yeah. If you had to choose between food or rent, how do you make that decision? Yeah. Because people have that actual lived experience. And if you don't have, to your point, proximity, then all you can do is play and you can guess. And then you can have a nice social time after and sit in a circle and debrief a completely made up thing. I was deeply offended by this game that was, you know, uh, walk a mile in someone's shoes kind of thing without ever creating real proximity. Like, why? Th- these are the right questions. They're yeah. absolutely the right questions, but you yeah. can't ask them to each other. Yeah. But. 
I'm going to give you a take on a version of that. Typically in employee volunteering, you get the standard events. Um, let's go clean up a park. Let's paint a, a school, that kind of thing. Nothing, nothing wrong with any of that. They're kind of entry level. Just come as you are. Mm-hmm. We're going to do something together. Nothing wrong with that. And one of the very popular ones is backpacks. So what we try to do, stuffing backpacks, giving you know, in September. School supplies. School supplies, that kind of thing. For a lot of middle-class folks, interestingly, they'll say, oh, I really never, you know, I hadn't thought of that before, but yeah, why don't they, they could just go to the dollar store or whatever it is. So you unpack that a little bit. So there's a bit of awareness there. But what we try to do is, is introduce a transformative elements. And so that means framing the experience, which means we're going to inform it so that when people try to make sense of what they're experiencing, they can use the material that we have given them, the insights that we've given them. And we're not telling them what to think or why they should think it or why they should care. We're just giving them information that can inform the context of the experience. So when they go to bring meaning to that experience... If they choose to, they can use some of the information that we've given them. And framing experience means you have a brief and a debrief. And during the brief, we try and create this proximity. We talk about the significance of the task and the proximity to the beneficiary. But in this particular case, we were doing school backpacks, some of which were going to be given to a woman's shelter. And it's very difficult to create proximity to the woman's shelter because we're not going to go there. It's protected. It's a safe house, right? In this particular case. Um, and we weren't going to treat it like a zoo and all march through and say, look at these ladies. Look at how hard they're struggling. This feels like turn of the century stuff, 1900s, where you would, you know, go to the poorhouse or the orphanage and and feel bad for those kids and leave some money behind. That's not what we were doing. But we did need, you do need to create proximity. I do need to be able to be able to imagine what it would be like to be the person. So we didn't have any experience with it. None of the people in that room, as far as I knew or could tell, had ever been to an emergency shelter. Maybe some had, but likely not. Odds are against it. So the nonprofit stood up and talked about what they did. They listed a bunch of bullet points, how much money they raised, what they did, which was all great. But that does not create proximity to the person at the shelter. So I just got up and I had done some research and I talked to some people. And from my own experiences, I created a bit of a character. We gave her a name, fake name fake character. I told them that at the beginning. I said, I'm going to tell you the story of Heidi. I'm not going to tell you any one person's story. We're going to, because that's not what we're doing here. But Heidi is a woman going to the shelter and she's coming in and she's going to get one of your backpacks that you're doing. Now here's, here's some things that statistically you've already heard about, but I'm going to, I'm going to tell you about Heidi. She's 18. Uh, she's had her first baby. She's terrified. Her parents kicked her out. Her, her uh, partner is, abuses her and w- may likely kill her if he finds her. So she is in fear of her life. She does not have a high school education. She has no prospects for a job. She's never been able to hold, hold a job. And she has a bunch of misdemeanors on her record. I want you to turn to the person. We were all in a big circle. I want you to turn to the person next to you in the circle and say, Hi, my name is Heidi. Here's what I'm most afraid of this week. I have no idea what they said. It really didn't matter. But for one moment, they had to think, what the hell would it be like to be Heidi? And that was enough. That was enough to to change the whole thing, how they were doing it, who they were doing, what they were putting in the backpacks, what they were writing on the cards. Because now they were involved in the story. They had to imagine it. 
you know, and and that that does trigger something. I mean, scientifically, it triggers a bunch of chemicals in our brains. But but to me, if doing backpacks without that is in a weird way just as just objectifying transactional. and transactional yeah, and yeah. quote unquote pornographic, it's just throwing money at a problem. So while you don't want to turn Heidi and her friends into a zoo for the poor that we all go look at, on the other hand, we don't want to remove them from the picture so completely that we're only seeing ourselves in the mirror. I'm trying to imagine what, in just probably like other listeners right now, what would I say? If I were thinking about Heidi right now, what would I want in a backpack? What would I want to, what am I afraid of? What am I thinking of? What am I good at? Well, who do I love? What are the things like, you know, I think if any time we can tell a a more complete, more fulsome picture, Mm. uh, story, um, just round out the character of, you know, you're, nothing is all bad. There are really tragic things, but Heidi has some really great things too. Uh, there are some strengths, there are some, but we just, we don't dig far enough. And I think in proximity, that's what you're forced to confront. Yes. You're forced to confront that, oh, you, you don't act like yeah. I thought you might act because I was just thinking of you as a list of all of these yeah. risk factors. Yeah. So I, yeah. I think I'll go away and think a little bit about Heidi today. That's probably a good place to to leave it. This podcast is brought to you by the RW Institute, produced by Daniel Parker, recorded remotely in Los Angeles from Baltimore, Maryland, and Halifax, Nova Scotia. Be sure to subscribe so you can keep up with the conversation. Care to react? Submit your comments at rw.institute or on the comment feature where you're listening now.